From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're taking a look at the ongoing economic and market implications of the coronavirus outbreak, which has now pushed the global economy into a recession of historic proportions and abruptly halted the longest equity bull market in history. As infections spread globally, economic activity collapses, markets recoil, and policymakers snap into action, the depth and duration of the economic and market downturn is top of mind. I first asked our head of global investment research and chief economist, Jan Hatzius, about the severity of the downturn, how long it might last, and what the recovery might look like. Jan, how severe of a global recession are we expecting at this point? I think it's going to be a pretty severe recession. For 2020 as a whole, our forecast for global GDP right now is about minus 1.2% which would be about a percentage point below what you saw in the year following the global financial crisis 2009. That's one measure of the severity. If you look at higher frequency measures, you get even more severe numbers. The first quarter in China, for example, by our estimates, saw a 42% quarter-on-quarter annualized contraction. And for the second quarter in the U.S., or the euro area, we're looking for numbers in the 20 to 40% range. Again, these are quarter-on-quarter annualized numbers, so you can get some pretty large numbers because you're effectively multiplying the sequential change by four. It's a very severe downturn in the short term. The reason why it's so severe is that it's basically a sudden stop in economic activity that's driven not by financial factors like most recessions in the past, monetary tightening or drops in asset prices, but it's driven effectively by a physical constraint that's being put on economic activity. The concern about the spread of the virus and the response to that as far as behavior is concerned and as far as government measures to increase social distancing and lockdown activity are concerned, that's what's effectively putting an end at least for a period of time, to economic activity in a number of sectors, especially parts of the consumer sector that rely on a large degree of face-to-face interaction, but also areas like construction, which we think is going to take a pretty big hit, and manufacturing, where you've got not only some of the social distancing measures, but also some pretty severe supply chain problems. So all of that is producing a hit to activity that is large and maybe even more importantly, acts much more quickly than the business cycles that we've seen in the past. So the current recession looks as severe as the global financial crisis. Will it be as long? The good news is that we don't think it's going to last as long as the global financial crisis. This, of course, depends on the medical news and the responses to that medical news. But the key difference between this downturn and the global financial crisis is that the global financial crisis was really the culmination of a decade or more of financial imbalances that have built up in the economy and overinvestment in certain sectors of the economy, most obviously housing, 
that then took a long time to be unwound starting in 2007, 2008, but lasting for several years after that. So you had a pretty deep downturn, a long-lasting downturn, and then quite a slow recovery following the crisis. This is much more of a black swan event. There is a large constraint that's being put on economic activity in a very short period of time, Q1, Q2, 2020. But once that is behind us and once the medical news has improved, the recovery should come swifter and should be stronger than what you saw coming out of 2008. So will the recovery most likely be L, U, or V-shaped? I think the terminology of L's, U's, and V's is problematic because the answer depends so much on whether you're talking about the level of activity or the rate of change. As far as the level of activity is concerned, I think you could say that our forecast is U-shaped. We see a sharp downturn in the short term, then only a gradual recovery in terms of getting back to the sort of GDP level that we would have been on in the absence of the virus. So for example, of the nearly 10% hit that we expect to the level of GDP as of April, roughly half unwinds through the end of 2020, and then you get further very gradual improvements in 2021. That's not a particularly rapid pace. And the reason is that we think there are going to be some types of activity that will come back quickly, more sort of small ticket items and more everyday items like restaurant meals and whatever hit to goods consumption you get. We think those probably will come back relatively soon, but then there are some big ticket items that are going to take longer to come back. Big ticket travel, long distance, airplane trips, cruises. I mean, there are some sectors where you wonder whether they're going to come back at all or at least to anywhere near where they were previously. However, even with that pretty U-shaped recovery, if you then translate that into quarterly growth rates, you still get some very strong growth rates. And people will be tempted to say that that's a very V-shaped recovery. So for example, in the US, our current forecast is minus 24% quarter on quarter annualized for GDP in the second quarter, but then plus 12% in the third quarter, plus 10% in the fourth quarter. That's consistent with a pretty gradual return to normal, but nevertheless, those are obviously extremely strong numbers. If you compare them to any other cycle that we've seen for many decades. And the only real reason why we get such big numbers is that you really have to see them in conjunction with the extremely sharp downturn that's likely in the near term. I then spoke to Jason Furman, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration. He agrees with Jan that the recession is likely to be severe and is unconvinced by the prospect of a rapid recovery given the potential extent of the harm to businesses and the labor market. I think the world is heading for the most predictable recession we've ever had. Never before has there been such an abrupt, synchronized, and global shutdown of so much economic activity. Do you think it will be more severe than the global financial crisis? I think there is a risk that it will be more severe than the global financial crisis. It depends on how long the suppression period lasts and how much difficult to reverse damage happens during that suppression period. 
and what the policy responses are. I am less confident in a V-shaped recovery because the dynamics of the business cycle are such that the unemployment rate can go up quickly, but it's never come down quickly. Businesses can go bankrupt and they can't become unbankrupt and will continue to deal with whack-a-mole spread of the pandemic around the world. So there'll be global supply chain issues for some time as well. You don't believe it's likely that we have a V-shaped recovery. What period do you think it's going to last over? How are you looking at not the next quarter, but second half of the year into 2021? We don't have a lot of historic evidence from pandemics. In a financial crisis, it can take five to 10 years to recover back to where you were and your level of GDP can be permanently lower as a result of this. If the global economy misses a year of growth, that's not something that you usually rebound quickly from. There's a bunch of R&D that would be being done right now, a bunch of capital investment, a bunch of innovation that's not happening because of this crisis. And so my best guess is that the effects of something like this are persistent and some of the GDP loss is never made up and permanently shows up in a lower level of GDP. The most important thing for 2021 is where we are in controlling the virus. If we are still doing a bunch of steps that limit both global exchanges and major industries domestically, you could continue to have negative growth in 2021. If we mess up and it turns into a financial crisis in addition to the health crisis, that would certainly last into 2021. So at this stage, this is a tremendous amount of uncertainty, but I think a perfectly reasonable chance that you're still seeing negative growth next year. Off the back of a flurry of policy responses from governments and central banks around the world, I asked both Hotsius and Furman their views on the policy response and how effective it will be in addressing the economic and market fallout from the health crisis. Here's Hotsius. So we've obviously seen a flurry of monetary and fiscal policy responses at this point. How much will those help? I don't think they're going to help much in terms of what happens in the second quarter. In the very near term, the downturn in the economy is really driven by factors that relate to the virus and the response to the virus, both behavioral and administrative. So even though we've seen a really pretty unprecedented monetary and fiscal policy to lean against the downturn, I don't think that's going to help much in terms of what happens in the next few months as far as GDP is concerned or other measures of overall activity. Where I think the policy response is extremely important is in one, relieving distress among households and businesses, basically tied them over a period of severely disrupted activity and unemployment in many cases. That's number one. And number two, keeping the economy and the financial system functional to set us up for a recovery whenever the medical emergency is behind us. The concern that I think policymakers are trying to address is that you get this big downturn and you do systemic damage to 
the fabric of the business sector and the functioning of the financial system. And if they're successful in their efforts to prevent that damage, then we'll be in a much better position to see a recovery starting sometime in the second quarter and then in the third quarter. So that's, I think, the goal. And I think, of course, we don't know how that's going to turn out. But I would say that some of the steps that have been taken have definitely been reassuring. I would emphasize in particular the very strong efforts that central banks have made and especially the Federal Reserve has made in combating market illiquidity and malfunctioning of financial markets. And our expectation is that the additional money that is going to be available for setting up additional Fed facilities in relieving illiquidity, in particular in private sector financial markets, such as commercial paper, corporate bonds, and asset-backed securities, that that's going to go a long way toward reducing the risk of systemic damage. And here's Furman, who had firsthand experience making policy in a crisis when he was at the White House during the global financial crisis. Making policy right now is even more difficult than it was in the financial crisis. Economic events are unfolding even faster. And the people that are putting together these policies, many of them not allowed to interact face-to-face with each other. Many of them have children at home, might be worried about someone getting sick and the like. So just literally the process by which things are getting done now is just so difficult. The complexity of the legislation the president signed for paid leave, that was very complex legislation. And between the day it was a talking point to the day it was signed by the president was probably five days. I just have never seen things moving at this speed. I also haven't seen policy move at this speed. The reduction in interest rates to zero, the massive scale of purchases by the Federal Reserve, likely having two trillion dollars of stimulus enacted within weeks of an event. So they are doing a huge, huge amount, much bigger, faster than was done in the financial crisis under very difficult circumstances. I think the Fed has been excellent, but there's only a limited amount it can accomplish. I think the Congress has been faster than I've ever seen it, but still several days behind where it should have been. And the administration was slow to comprehend the enormity of what was happening on the economic side, but I think they're there now. So overall, I would rate the responses pretty good, almost better than we've ever seen before, but still not fast enough and big enough. The Congress is set to approve a roughly $2 trillion fiscal package. Is that size appropriate? I think it's very hard to know exactly what you need to do. So you need to be prepared to try to do a lot and then to come back and do even more. I think on the fiscal side, this is the right size roughly for now. What I think is really important is to build in automatic mechanisms that would continue all of this assistance if it's needed, if the economy is in bad shape. One of the lessons of the financial crisis is you can see extraordinary action at the peak moments of crisis, 
But then even when things are still quite bad, people can tire of the action and think it's too much and not want to do anymore, which is why I think the more you can pass things today that continue as long as they're needed, the greater our ability to avoid the problem of a premature withdrawal of economic stimulus. In coming up with the right policy, Berman further argues that now is not the time to be worrying about the deficit. Should we be at all worried at this point that we are about to increase what is already a very large deficit? Now is not a time to worry about fiscal constraints. There is a huge liquidity shock. Households are going to need to borrow. Businesses are going to need to borrow. States and localities are going to need to borrow. The federal government is going to need to borrow. Of all of those entities, the one that has the best ability to borrow at the lowest interest rates is the federal government. And so the more it can do borrowing and take pressure off of the others by a small business lending facility, by cash payments to individuals, by money for states, the more it's going to relieve the overall financial pressure in the economy. In addition, if you're worried about fiscal sustainability, you need GDP to collect taxes and pay off your debt. And if we don't have a large fiscal response, we're not going to have a lot of GDP going forward. Finally, Furman argues that the policy response must in part focus on banks to ensure that they're part of the solution rather than the problem so that the health crisis doesn't turn into a financial crisis. The trickiest job for the Fed and the other regulators will be ensuring that the banking system is safe and sound and in a position to lend, especially to businesses in the ways that are needed. Banks did come into this with a lot of capital, but there's been a big withdrawal of credit lines. There's going to be difficulty repaying a lot of loans and some mortgages and taking steps on the regulatory side, whether regulatory forbearance, allowing less capital, making banks, in addition to not buying back their stocks, not pay dividends, and other steps like that, because the banking system is going to be a really important part of the response. The banking system has to be part of the solution to this, and it would be terrible if it becomes part of the problem. So given this economic and policy backdrop, how should investors be positioned amid all of this uncertainty? There is perhaps no one better to help answer that question than Howard Marks, legendary investor and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management. In Marx's view, no one can ever tell you when things have bottomed. So the most productive thing an investor can do is to assess price changes versus fundamentals. It doesn't do any good to think about how long the stock market is going to go down for or how low. These are unknowable. It's all about value. It's always about finding the assets that have been treated too well so that their prices are too high and you don't want to buy them, and the assets that have been treated too badly so their prices are too low, and you do want to buy them. And that's the only thing productive you can do today. There's an old saying that I've known as long as I've been in this business, that in times of crisis, all correlations go to one. In other words, everything behaves the same. They kill them all. That is irrational. So probably the most productive thing an investor can do today is to look for things with a good future that have been treated as badly as the things that have a bad future, and buy them. On that basis, Mark sees some value today and thinks it's a decent time to take some risk. I think this is a decent time to 
take a little more risk. Things are a lot cheaper than they were 30 days ago. In other words, they've been put on sale. You could probably buy some when they go on sale, but nobody can tell you they're not going to be further markdowns. So if I had a bunch of cash today, I would spend some of it today, but I sure wouldn't spend all of it. Maybe start here and buy some and husband some cash, and if they go lower, hopefully you keep your nerve and you still have money to spend, then you buy some more. Lastly, I asked Marks what an average person should be doing with their savings right now. There are two risks that every investor, ranging from the amateur to the wealthy individual to the professional like me, that we have to shoulder every day. There's the risk of losing money. Nobody wants to do that. There's the risk of missing opportunity. We probably don't want to do that either. So in your life, overall, given your age and your resources and your income and your financial aspirations and your ability to live with volatility and your number of dependents and where you are in your life cycle and are you about to retire, you take all these considerations, you think about them, and you say to yourself, normally, how much should you be worrying about losing money and how much should you be worrying about missing opportunities? You can eliminate either of them. You can eliminate the risk of losing money by being all in treasuries, for example, or you can eliminate the risk of missing opportunity by being highly aggressive. Eliminating either of the two risks exposes you entirely to the other of the two risks. They don't go away. So you have to figure out in your life, how do you want to be balanced? That's it. Nobody can give you the answer. There is no the answer. And for each person, it should be different. On the investing front, our own strategists advise sticking with defensive positioning for now and are looking for certain conditions to be met, either in full or convincingly in part, to pretend a trough in macro assets. Those conditions range from a flattening out of infection rates in the U.S. and Europe to sufficiently large global stimulus measures to a mitigation of funding and liquidity stresses. In the meantime, all of those potential conditions and the continuing impact of the virus on the global economy, markets, and beyond will remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this trying time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.